welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements starting from 1839 coming up to the present. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast, for me, is like a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. To get things started off here, uh, if you'd like to support the podcast uh, for free, you can rate and review on all platforms, share with your friends. Uh, otherwise, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can join the substack at chineserevolutions.substack.com. And please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Somebody wrote in with some questions about the Taiping. To protect privacy, I don't really do shout-outs if a lot of subscribers start piling on that I might have to do that, but you know who you are, and I really appreciate it. Uh, the personal the, the personal project here side is sort of you know, what I've been doing. Uh you know, it's it's what I've been, it's what I saw, experienced, and thought about, you know, during seven years of living in China. But personal projects are easy to toss to the side. When you guys write in, I feel like I'm doing this for someone, like there are friends I don't want to let down, and you know that that really helps get me through some of the. I feel depressed this week. I don't want to do anything. If you, you know, when you write in, that, that helps me know that, yeah, there's somebody out there. Okay, so again, thanks for writing in. Uh, last week, we shifted away from the Second Opium War look-in episodes. We looked at the big picture of the revolutionary situation of China, loss of sovereignty being the main problem that was unresolved until the communist takeover in 1949. And we introduced the guy I've been excited to get to, Zheng Guofan. Today we'll get more into the Zheng Guofan story. The uh, book we are drawing mostly upon for this episode is Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War by Stephen R. Platt. So to review, Zheng Guofan was a Confucian scholar. His hometown was in Hunan, where a lot of brutal campaigning had been happening in the Taiping Rebellion. And he was of the very highest rank. He was appointed to the Hanlin Academy in uh, Beijing. He was very personally disciplined, and he was not corrupt. He was dedicated to China. He was not friendly to foreigners and foreign ideas. And some of his... Uh, just a note here, some of his brothers and, extent, and extended family are going to get involved, you know, so Zheng this and Zheng that and Zheng something else. So I'm going to be using his full name and not, you know, and then Zheng did, um, for many of the listeners, not as acquainted with the Chinese language, Chinese names just kind of all merge together, so I'm going to make sure that they're as distinct as possible. Uh, okay, so in 1852, Zheng Guofan was back in his hometown in Hunan to observe mourning practices because his mother had died. Uh, the traditional practice is to spend three years in mourning. It usually does take me that long to wake up 
but um, you know, when somebody's died, it's you know, you voluntarily spend three years mourning in um, in in these Confucian practices, and normally officials are assigned roles away from their hometowns so that they can't develop local power bases so that the officials would be loyal to the emperor and not loyal to the people they're governing. You, know, you could think of it as a form of regulatory capture. It's like you're sent to enforce the emperor's will, but then when you identify too much with the local people, then uh, you know, you're, you're doing it the wrong way around as one of these officials. He arrived there in late autumn, 1852, because he had to take the roundabout way to avoid the siege of Changsha in the Taiping Rebellion, with pow the power and policing vacuum created because the, f the military forces of the dynasty were focused on defeating the Taiping, the perennial Chinese weed banditry grew up. It's, it's just... You know, every time that there's something going on, banditry comes up. You know, end of a dynasty, you know, yeah, okay, there's the rebellions, there's the political intrigue, but then you get the bandits, always the bandits. And so the emperor ordered civil servants to mobilize local militias to deal with the problem. Many men had little training um, and few weapons, like, so they, they, they had bodies, but, like, not a lot of guys trained and armed to, for, to do business. It, it didn't work very well. There was very poor overall command and control, and the local officials were self-interested, not willing to go far from home. So, this is the pivotal moment, then. In January 1853, the emperor orders Zeng Guofan to specifically get things going in Hunan, get it under control, restore order to the province. And he was given the unprecedented latitude of you know, broad uh, military uh, authority in his home region. So you know, the emperor knew him to be loyal and familiar with the people and the place, uh, but he wasn't chosen for his talent with military matters, or even talent generally. Zeng Guofan's teacher, Tang Jian, uh, recommended uh, Zeng Guofan to the emperor on the basis of his ability to make good judgments about personnel and how to employ the right people. Chinese scholars uh, despised the military profession and the acquisition of military skill, you know, I, I'd call this appointment very unusual. I can't think of any parallels. Like when you, you know, if you think of, say, Cardinal Richelieu in France, okay, well, he knew things about statecraft. Um, I mean, this is, I mean, here we're at the a period of history when you can still get somewhere by telling somebody to figure out the human problem and you'll sign on to whatever they come up with. Because, like, like, modern military stuff is, like, if you don't have guns, if you don't have the right kind of guns, you're not in the game anymore. But for Zeng Guofan, he, they needed spears, swords, knives. That you can kind of figure something out. 
Whereas like if you have the wrong kind of gun and you know, the, you know, maybe there's a pivotal 10 years of development of firearms that you're missing out on you, it, you're, it doesn't matter how disciplined you are if they can just blow you right up. Well, in, in this case it worked and it's going to work spectacularly and we'll get into some of the details of how that all came through uh, with how he set the army up that he was going to do. So Tsung Kuofan actually didn't want this appointment. He drafted a memo to the emperor declining on the grounds that rituals for mourning the death of his mother were incomplete. He was also motivated by skepticism that getting the militias together would work, raising money from gentry unwilling to fork it over. Um, you know, because, like, they had, you know, like, uh, depending on how they sit on the fence, they might be able to come through Taiping or Qing who would win. They, they, um, there's the, there, then there's the issue of commanding the militias themselves. And, okay, well, January 12, 1853, news came through that the Taiping rebels, rebels had conquered the capital of Hubei, the province uh, to the north of Hunan. And these things, so things with the rebellion really seemed to be getting out of hand, and it's got to be someone or no one, and Tsung Guofan was someone. So his father, his brothers, his close friends convinced him to take on the mission for the sake of protecting home. It's like, okay, I'll, I, I guess I'll do it. In Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, uh, Stephen Platt uh, kind of steps outside of the Tsung Guofan story, and he talks about the regular structure of the Qing army. The Manchus and the Mongols were at the, the top level in what are called banner forces. Administrative regions in Mongolia, Mongolian and Manchu areas of China today are still called banners. Um, they received the overwhelming share of the military budget, which was not big for uh, reasons we will get into in just a moment. Uh, the green standard armies, like standard as in flag, these are Chinese soldiers. They were nominally, on the books, 600,000 in the 1850s, but they hadn't really been properly mobilized for 50 years. So there was lots and lots of corruption. So like maybe somebody would have 500, they'd call it 1,000, they'd pocket the salaries for the imaginary 500 soldiers, and then cheat the real 500 kind of thing. Like there was very little training. Traditionally, uh, soldiers were supposed to buy and maintain their own hand weapons, like knives and swords, individually. Uh, but they spent the money allotted for that on food for their families or on opium. Uh, the state was supposed to provide firearms for the, where those were used, but those were obsolete by European standards and they were in poor repair anyway because of austerity measures. The, the central finances of the empire were drained because of campaigns decades before. And, you know, re like regulations said don't replace weapons until they've been used for 30 or 40 years. But some of these weapons were over 100 years old. Uh, the, the book referenced matchlocks. Uh, like as you light a match and you put it on your musket and, you know, hope it stays lit while you're shooting. You know, then the, the flintlock was a development on that because then you just have a piece of rock that strikes and 
it gives off a spark and there you go you don't have to light anything the um you know and then there was later percussion caps but the the, the chinese had really old weapons and even then they weren't well kept um, like america let's let's compare this to to other you know situations america is still paying for past wars even today but our system allows us to take out loans that are going to be repaid over generations the superiority of the british or the american political system is largely in its ability to borrow colossal sums of money for military campaigns um, and political systems like china's have to come up with the money from somewhere not and they're not nearly so able okay this is china under the qing um China under the imperial system. The present system is a whole different thing. So the the old imperial system, they just had to come up with the money from somewhere, and they're not nearly so able to just put it on their tab at uh, you know reasonable interest rates. So yeah, you know, I'll uh, you know I'd like a hundred thousand rifles and uh, put it on my tab. No, that's not that's not going to work if you don't have a functioning dynamic market economy to back to back it up and i'm getting this thinking from the from the maritime power series by peter padfield and there were links to that in the show notes for the previous episode uh, remember the also remember the the dictator's handbook by bruce bueno de mesquita and alistair smith um some of the principles for keeping power, you know, if you're the chief, you prioritize paying the people in charge of keeping you in power. Anything nice you do for the people is an extra. Investments in the security and prosperity of the people is primarily based on whatever keeps you in power. So you might have medical services for working age people, but very little in general for infants or the aged. You know, like it's not like they're going to be in your army or in your factories or, in, you know, mining the minerals that you sell into the international system. So then you can pocket the the, the profits. Um, and it, you know, for for the dictator, it's more important to keep your security forces keeping you in power, well armed and well paid. It's more important to have good security for you rather than to have a properly functioning standing army. Like, do, do you ever watch the footage coming out of Russia right now uh, with the war in Ukraine and how there's protests and you wonder why there are so many police to suppress protests, but they're kind of short on combat troops? The That's because... You know, how it's set up, it's set up to keep the present authorities in power rather than just to have a first-class military. Like like the way America is right now, they're uniquely able to keep soldiers at fairly well top-of-the-level training um, because there's just so much money in the American system. If you have a system where the money is short you're gonna find it taken out somewhere and in the chinese case it was from the army um so we'll go back to zhongguo fine and some of the things he's done uh with the the green standard army uh 
right, right here. So in 1851, this is before he's going in to do anything about the Taiping Rebellion, he recommended reducing their numbers. He just, you know, he said they just sat around and smoked opium, they ran gambling establishments, they took up with gangs, when they're actually called to fight, they paid local bums and layabouts to take their places. They, that, that is, the soldiers paid the bums and layabouts to take the soldiers' places. I don't think they took the bums and layabouts' places. They'd kill locals and dress them up as rebels and claim victory. Yeah, okay. And so, uh, quoted in Ottoman in the Heavenly Kingdom, Zunguofan said, even if Confucius himself came back to life, he could spend three years and still not manage to correct their evil ways. Like that, that is a sick burn from a uh, Confucian scholar. And he further criticized the Green Standard Armies in 1853 after taking up the mission. They'd pursue rebels just beyond effective combat range. They'd attack with cannon and firearms, but they'd not close to attack to, to finish the job, you know, and this is the time when hand-to-hand -hand is still a viable way to do war. Um, the, and let's think about the quality of his observations here. An outside observer might not know how to get what he's looking for from a situation, you know, how to get, get something to do its job, but he can tell you whether or not the job is being done. You know, I don't know how this magical sand, sandwich maker machine works, but it's not making sandwiches. It's just kind of shooting bologna at me whenever it sees me. So, like, yeah, that's that's it's busted. It's it just doesn't work. Zunguofan is not a military man, but he can tell whether the enemy is being actively defeated or whether the problem is just dragging out. Is is uh, the official control of the Qing Dynasty is it being restored, or is chaos persisting? It's one thing to have a dedicated military force you know struggling to achieve a certain end like but but you can then you can see that they're doing something like you know the um so you know war is the most brutal job possible even highly skilled forces suffer enormous losses because you're getting down to the rawest of raw materials human lives after a certain point soldiers have to figure out how to fight and how to win and Zhang Guofan could see that the Green Standard uh, armies were not doing it. They weren't fighting. You know, bad military forces don't attack because they don't have a reason to do it. Maybe you know, if they were effective, they'd be fighting for home, they'd have some sort of professionalism, or they'd have something to gain, like they could gain loot. Well, a lot of Chinese armies under the Qing Dynasty they would just loot. Like, you don't have to defeat the enemy, you can just loot the local people. Yeah, it's, it's called robbery, thuggery, gangs, you know, it's... You know, you don't have to join a military to steal things from people. And, you know, but you need the military to do military things. Um, so... What Zhang Guofan does is he goes back into history to find a model for how to organize the forces he's going to use against the Taiping. He models his force on that of a Ming general who trained his forces uh, to fight Japanese pirates on the coast. So we'll get into some of the details here. Uh, Zhang Guofan aimed to build 
a small, well-trained, effective fighting force. He appealed to the emperor for patience so that he could get it done. Is And here's what he demanded from recruits. One, that they be from rural and not urban backgrounds, and two, that their recruitment be through personal relationships. His own officers were his brothers, his friends, his colleagues. They, in turn, chose their own subordinates, all the way down to the bottom. Personal recruitment. The He wanted a Confucian father-son relationship between superiors and subordinates. subordinates. The chain of command and the personal relationships between levels of authority were very important. Officers replaced would have to re-recruit the units, or the, the units would be sent home. That, that somebody was responsible for it. They were responsible to somebody, for something. There were very clear lines of responsibility for these troops. Uh, the... Uh, we'll get we'll get to we'll come back to this point in just a moment. Um, there were high salaries. There were prizes for combat kills and captured material and equipment. Uh, the like if you look at the American system, the uh, the army, the navy, air force, they're all paid pretty well uh, compared to a lot of other militaries worldwide. So Zheng Guofan is trying to really, really make sure that he's paying his troops well. Because if you're not getting paid, why do a good job, why do the job at all, even if only badly, if you're not getting paid? Uh, the ideological core was pretty simple. Service to the country, gratitude to the emperor, and combat training, like the, the, the mentality is kill or be killed. Like, like yeah, like 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 do these exercises so that you can be good at killing, so that you don't get killed. They took training very seriously. There were strict, harsh punishments for evading duty or running away in combat. Uh, okay, so the the key difference between the regular Qing army and Zheng Guofan's army, well, in, in the the Green Standard Army. Uh, a soldier could just show up or stop showing up. It, it didn't really matter. They 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 needed bodies, and if you had a body and wanted to put it in, like okay, fine. Uh, in Zhang Guofan's army, the personal connections meant soldiers were letting down specific friends, their family of theirs, and you know a soldier's home and family were known. So either the a soldier who like runs away can be found or his family can be punished. There's clear responsibility for what's going on. And then, okay, so as we wrap up the episode, uh, the, the, main, the first main obstacle that he's running into as he gets things going is logistics. So Zheng Guofan's new army is... Uh, He's having to compete with local officials over the same sources of money, weapons, and supplies that the Green Standard Army would be drawing upon. Local officials were protective of their own jurisdictions. Zheng Guofan's own position was new and unknown, so they ignored him because he didn't obviously have authority according to precedents that they were used to. There was even armed combat between Zheng Guofan's forces and local Green Standard forces. Like, they would... Zheng Guofan's men would get arrested and sometimes killed by these regular troops. 
uh, and their supplies are traditionally supposed to be provided by the emperor, but the emperor was out of money. So commanders were granted authority to use their creativity to get funding uh, and you know power to devise taxes and fees, selling degrees and honorary ranks, and straightforward fundraising. And you know, so that there was competition with a lot of the local you know, people who were already working on that for established forces, whereas Zhang Guofan was coming out with something totally new. So here's here's the message that Zhang Guofan took out to uh, to do his fundraising. The Taiping rebels were a threat to China's civilization. It's not so much an appeal to protect the Qing, but to protect Confucian civilization. He did argue, though, that the current dynasty was still a going concern. Yeah, it does look like the end of a dynasty, but this emperor was quite good. He still had a grip on things, um, and this it wasn't the natural end of the Qing dynasty. This was this was a difficult argument to reckon with. I guess I was thinking about it, because you know, argument is as much a weapon as weapons are. In this case, he's making the argument that money and whatever supplies should be given over to him to fight the Taiping rebels. And so, was the Qing emperor of the time really competent, or was Zhang Guofan just speaking, hopefully, well, it doesn't really matter at this point. He got the army organized, and he's going to hit the road so he can end the Taiping Rebellion. So, how do we connect this to Chinese revolutions? One interesting bit is, you know, remember, Zhang Guofan reached back into history for his example. So every Chinese revolution coming up is going to go back to Chinese precedents. I like to joke that, you know, in you know, in the Chinese Civil War, uh, Chiang Kai-shek was fighting opponents who could read Sun Tzu in the original. Like, like yeah, you're, they, they had very sophisticated military strategies worked out. Uh, so, you know, this, this, so the, the revolutionary bit here about locally, ang- about locally loyal armies it is it's revolutionary because it's being done fresh in his time Zhang Guofan was quite modern actually in the construction of his force he's relying upon something like democratic support uh, in countries like okay I, I talk about America because I'm an American uh, the the military has a lot of popular support and you you know friends family go in and so the you know so so the army you know like so people volunteer to send supplies to troops you know in combat and so Zhang Guofan had this with local recruitment local loyalties people who know each other going to war together in America, soldiers are paid quite well. Much of that colossal military budget is personnel pay and benefits. My grandfather's 88, and he's still collecting military benefits. Uh, I had a friend from high school who he now basically lives on disability benefits. 
those are active expenses for the United States military. And so Zhang Guofan is making sure to pay his troops well, that troops aren't just bodies you force into service and then throw a rousing speech at him from time to time. No, he's really making sure to recruit carefully, train them carefully, and pay them well. And think about Zhang Guofan's message. Fighting for the nation, fighting for one's civilization. Um, th these are today potent arguments for why to fight a war. Uh, much of the argument on the Russian side for intervening in Ukraine in the current conflict is civilizational. A lot of the reasoning for NATO support for Ukraine is civilizational. If you want to dig into the mainland China-Taiwan situation, the Communist Party wants to complete the reunification of the mainland as an end cap to the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Uh, that That is just begging for like a mock newspaper headline to to make fun of that that rhyme anyway uh, you know taiwan wants something like to be free and independent like either to be its own country or to be the germ of something that could transform mainland china into something along the westernized democratic lines under which taiwan presently operates i'm kind of looking forward to you know, like maybe six months, maybe a year from now, we can do a series of episodes specifically on Taiwan going from this one book uh, that I'm thinking of. Um, I can't remember exactly what the title is, but it's by a lady named Shelley Rigger. Anyway, so that's the start of Zhang Guofan organizing a military force to put an end to the Taiping Rebellion. Uh, so to close up, uh, again, please rate, review, and subscribe on all platforms. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can go to chineserevolutions.substack.com, or please send me an email. That also that gives me motivation to keep going. Uh, I have been your host, Nathan Bennett, and I'll see you next time.